part of the issue has to do uh, with a counter-narrative mm -hmm. uh, about the value of critical discourse, uh, of asking difficult questions, not only internally, but also of government, of uh, society, of um, um, social mobility. That was Santa Ono, the president of the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, which was the latest stop on the Future U campus tour. This campus tour episode is made possible with the exclusive support of Dell and Google Chrome OS. Subscribe to Future U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, share it with your friends so others can discover the conversations we're having about higher education. I'm Michael Horn. And I'm Jeff Salingo. So welcome, everyone, to Future U. A huge thank you to the University of Michigan for hosting us today. President Ono, Santa, if I may, Please welcome do. to Future U. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be with you again, Jeff. It's great. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And we've gotten to in interview several dozen uh, university presidents. And uh, a question that always sparks our listeners is learning about their career path to the presidency. So we'd love to hear about your journey to Ann Arbor and the presidency here. Well, thank you very much. Uh, in a way, um, I've always been at a university. Uh, my father uh, was a mathematics professor, and I was born on a university campus at UBC, uh, and then followed my father to successive positions at Penn uh, and then uh, Johns Hopkins, where I went to high school. I was then uh, really just focused on being a biomedical scientist, and so I uh, went through the ranks um, at Johns Hopkins and Harvard, uh, but was really recruited to consider a, a career in administration by Earl Lewis, uh, who um, had moved at that time from the University of Michigan's Rackham Graduate School to Emory University to be its provost. And uh, through a search, he picked me to be his deputy and to be a senior vice provost at the university. And I just loved doing that, really working at the enterprise-wide level at really shaping that great institution to be an even better uh, university and very proud of what we did uh, together. Uh, I was then recruited to be uh, provost and then president of the University of Cincinnati uh, and then president of the University of British Columbia where I was born and raised as a toddler until I was a toddler um, and then uh, about a year ago uh, recruited to the University of Michigan at uh, Ann Arbor but also with campuses in Dearborn and Flint. So, um, that's pretty much my career. I'm a biomedical scientist. I do research in immunology, but now um, greater than 90% of my time is really focused on being a president. We're here at the University of Michigan. You're a world-class global research university. You're also a state university in this day and age, uh, which requires a lot, of, a lot of balancing. And I think when people hear the, the University of Michigan, uh, they think of where we are right now in, in Ann Arbor. But as you mentioned, you have these campuses also in Dearborn and in Flint. So how do you think about the different purposes of each of these campuses and how do you define the community that's part of each? So, you know, how do you balance this idea of, of Michigan being part of the world, but important to this state of Michigan, but also to these communities that you're in? It's something that I take very seriously. And if you look at the history of the development of the University of Michigan system, uh, if you think about the birth of the University of Michigan initially in Detroit, and then migrating here to Ann Arbor, which was at its founding a very sleepy place with lots of fields and animals grazing. If you look at a, 
uh, a picture of the original University of Michigan campus in Ann Arbor. It was very small, just a few buildings. And so if you think about how the university grew, it was because of the state. And I often like to say that this is not the University of Michigan, it's the University for Michigan. I, I, I truly believe, and many people in the institution believe that we owe something to the state of Michigan. And that's something that people feel very fervently. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, over the history of the university, as it grew from one campus into a system of three universities, that um, each of the additional campuses, uh, Flint and then Dearborn, um, served a different community. Um, communities that have evolved over time, but have been critical for the success of the state of Michigan. Um, both Flint and Dearborn were very, very important, continue to be very important, but were very important uh, as uh, the state grew and, and su succeeded in the auto industry. Uh, but they're very different uh, uh, towns as well in terms of their demographics, um, in terms of um, the focus of those campuses, in terms of uh, the kinds of uh, um, priorities in terms of, for example, practice-based education at Dearborn, but also the demographics in, in those two different cities. And uh, I take, and I think the university takes very seriously, our role in each of these three different locations. Uh, we have great leaders of all three campuses um, in Flint with uh, Donna Fry and uh, Domenico Grasso at Dearborn. And I'm really proud of their strategic thinking. I'm very proud of the role that each campus plays in uh, their cities, but also the synergy that exists that we hope to grow between the three campuses. So let's dive into the Ann Arbor campus where we are specifically. And you've noted to us uh, beforehand that you all have 150 programs in the top 10 uh, globally. Uh, just an incredible, stunning you know, breadth and depth uh, of excellence uh, at the university. You all are obviously a magnet for talent around the world. Uh, among undergrad applicants, you admit less than one out of every five uh, applicants. You conduct research on pressing challenges confronting humanity, such as climate change, which we'll get into uh, in the second half uh, of the show. But you're also in the backyard of Detroit. As you mentioned, you were once located there. Uh, you're a state institution in Michigan. I'm just sort of curious about how you think about the intersection, though, of those overlapping communities and perhaps missions, and where are their synergies, but where are their tensions or trade-offs that you have to make, and, and how do you see those evolving right now? You know, I think that the uh, University of Michigan takes seriously all of these sort of concentric circles of responsibility. As I was mentioning in my previous response, we owe a great deal to the state of Michigan, but also to the Detroit, where we're we were founded, but we still have extensive and likely growing, a growing presence, uh, and so that is something that we uh, will continue to will continue to be a priority. But as you have have said, um, you know the University of Michigan now, in terms of its activities, educational activities, research activities, and healthcare, we really span the entire state of Michigan and our neighboring states as well in terms of the collaborations that we have in terms of research and and outreach. But as you say, we also are members of both hemispheric and global organizations like the University Climate Change Coalition as a, as a hemispheric set of uh, a network of institutions focused on climate action. Uh, we take that very, very seriously. And we also believe uh, because of the strength of our faculty, what I like to call breadth at scale, excellence at scale, that um, that uh, we have a responsibility because of our size, the excellence of our faculty, staff, and students, that um, 
Um, there are very few institutions that have the excellence, the breadth, um, and the number of people that we graduate um, and individuals who train here and who go to other institutions, very few institutions that can really have uh, a transformative impact uh, on the most uh, vexing problems that we face as a civilization. So we take that responsibility very, very seriously. Okay, so I want to stay there uh, for, for a minute because, you know, big public universities, uh, local community leaders, states like to point fingers at them and say you're not quite doing enough for the state. We know, for example, across the country right now that trust in higher education has dropped to historic lows. Um, people just don't think it's doing enough as an institution, big I institution across the country, enough for the issues that we're facing today. So how do you combat these perceptions that, you know, Michigan is just this elite public university now? I would say, and I've speak to all people around the state, politicians, and all pe people in, at the federal level as well, that you'd have to ask them, but I would say that they have noticed that we're at the table more. Mm -hmm that we take this responsibility uh, even more seriously than we have. Um, I would argue that the University of Michigan has been involved at each of these levels of responsibility for a long time. But um, I'm very proud of the fact that our leaders, our deans, our faculty, and our students are, are very involved um, at each of these levels um, through activism, through service. Um, if you look at any of these uh, initiatives that are occurring, say, at the state level, to your point, um, we are really ramping up what we do, in, for example, in terms of economic development and technology transfer in the state. Um, the governor has really responded, lieutenant governor has really responded by including us on, 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 on significant committees and commissions. Uh, we are very involved with the other universities in the state, not only the R1 universities, but community colleges, to really think about how to create the talent and to retain the talent that's going to be required for uh, the vibrancy of the state economy. Uh, and we're also engaged uh, very actively with other institutions, but also the federal government, ensuring that we remain competitive as a nation. And so I would, I would say that I think that, uh, uh, that uh, if you talk to people, they, I hope that they will point out that we are, we're at the table and we're very engaged and we're ramping up our involvement. So what do you think, you've been obviously in higher ed for a long time, what do you think is at the center then of this lack of trust or this declining trust in, in higher education writ large across the country? I think it's multifactorial. I think that um, one, it's an issue of communication. I think that um, the sort of view that universities have for a long time been ivory towers um, is partially true. Um, universities haven't been very good at articulating their commitment, their passion, haven't uh, really gone outside of the campus boundaries in, in some cases. I don't think it's true at Michigan. Um, so part of it's communication. And, and, and if you don't talk about your involvement, people don't know about it and assume that it's not happening. So part of it is communi communication. I would say the other part of, of the distrust has to do with um, the, the question of ROI um, and um, whether or not... Um, um, people really believe that what students are experiencing uh, in, on campus, in the classroom, in the laboratory, um, how it relates to their future careers um, and their future impact on, on the community and on society in general. And so I think that it's time for introspection, and we're doing that as an institution, and the sector is doing that as well. I think it's healthy. 
Um, many things have changed since I was a college student. And so it is important, I think, for all of us to think about how we integrate into society, how we start to uh, look at um, you know, what we teach and how we can prepare uh, our future graduates to contribute to different fields. So I think it's very healthy. It's, it's happened in the in entire history of, of higher education. And this is a good time for us to do that as well. So part of it is uh, uh, an appropriate question of alignment of what we do in, prep, in, in the wants and needs of society, but as, uh, also uh, in terms of what our students want. Mm -hmm. um, students are different from when you and I yep. were in college, and we need to listen to them and incorporate that into the path forward. And I think it's healthy. So there's the talk the talk, communicate, there's the walk the walk and ROI and so forth. The other part of this that you've mentioned to us is that you've said, we want to play a bigger role in elevating Detroit. I'd love to know what that looks like tactically and on the ground. Yeah. Before I answer that, can I just, there was yeah, a please. third thing I want to talk about. And I think it would be uh, um, a miss for, not, for me not to mention that part of the issue has to do uh, with a counter narrative mm -hmm. uh, about, uh, about the value of critical discourse, uh, of asking difficult questions, not only internally, but also of government, of uh, society, of um, um, social mobility. Uh, and I think it, it's exceedingly important at these times for universities to remain committed to um, truth, to uh, evidence-based decision-making, to um, uh, reinforcing the importance of diversity of thought, uh, of civil discourse. And I think that um, many institutions have uh, varied from that from um, decades ago. And it's particularly important for us to recommit to that because uh, there's the cornerstone of a just society is, is that kind of freedom of expression, diversity of ideas, and civil discourse. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of that, we lose one of the great attributes of a university is uh, a diverse set of opinions, of perspectives that together actually inform the best path forward. No, that makes sense. Let, let's go to the Detroit one just briefly. Just talk about tactically what your work in elevating Detroit uh, looks like. Well, you know, one of the first people that I had, had the privilege of meeting when I arrived uh, here in Michigan was the mayor of, of Detroit, Mike Duggan, who's a proud graduate of the University of Michigan. And he's incredibly passionate about Detroit. He loves Detroit like no one I've met. Uh, and he's been very, very successful. There's really a renaissance of sorts that you can see if you go there. I encourage you to go there. There are incredible restaurants, wonderful museums. The orchestra is, is, is really fantastic. You can see, um, even within the year that I've been here, uh, the impact of that kind of focused effort. Go into the, to the mayor's uh, council room. Um, there are all kinds of charts. Um, and uh, he holds everyone accountable, including myself, even though I don't work for him, <laughs> to, to really uh, be part of the solution to make Detroit better. And his enthusiasm is infectious. I want to be his partner because, as I said, the University of Michigan, um, the resources that we have, um, the place that we hold in higher education is due to the success of Detroit, is due to the success of Michigan. And we owe something back to Detroit and to Michigan uh, to help make this um, 
uh, an even more vibrant and economically successful uh, part of the United States. And, and do you believe, just a quick follow-up on that, do you believe that the citizens of Detroit and of Michigan believe that? Well, I would say that we have work to do. Okay. Um, so to answer your question about how are we doing this, I'm sitting down, and other, the deans, other heads of department are sitting down. We have hundreds of interactions across Detroit in education, in healthcare, in economic development, in innovation, and we're gonna ramp that up. And so that's how we're actually doing it. We, there's no substitute to uh, rolling up your sleeves and working together, developing plans. And so, and that's not just with the mayor, it's his entire team. And, and I think that's gonna continue to, to grow. Uh, investments that uh, are, are making, t taking place in terms of infrastructure and programs um, are just breathtaking. In, in, in the space, for example, education, as an example. We're gonna invest more in uh, K through 12 education in Detroit and our Marcel Family School of Education. Um, I'm very proud of, of their role with that. But that's just w one example. Uh, so one other question before we open it up to audience questions. Again, uh, use the QR code uh, to ask questions and we'll ask them from the uh, from the stage here. So, uh, you know, we were talking before we got on stage about football, uh, and uh, and obviously the the Big Ten conference has expanded again. It's uh, no longer ten. No longer <laughs> ten. It hasn't been ten for quite some time. But uh, but but the other thing that we talk a lot on this podcast about is the future of higher ed in terms of of mergers and acquisitions, but more alliances and how universities can work more together. And and you know, and I, I've done a lot of work on the Big Ten over the years in terms of the history of the conference, and which really started out as an academic conference uh, more than athletics. And, uh, and and one of the things that I think really differs Big Ten, the Big Ten conference from every other athletic conference, and you know this from being in other athletic conferences, is that academic component, the Big Ten Academic uh, Alliance. So what else? Um, what else can the Big Ten do as the conference expands? as we think about the power of all of these institutions now that are gonna be in the Big Ten to solve the big challenges facing the US, do you, do you imagine the Big Ten Academic Alliance and the, the alliance aspect of it to become bigger as a result of, of the expansion? Well, certainly there are more institutions and uh, I can tell you as a member of the expansion committee of sorts, uh, of within the com committee and presidents and chancellors that, um, as has been the case for a long time at the Big Ten, um, the strength of, of, of current and prospective members of the conference, one of the most important things that is considered is their strength as a, a research university, most of them public, as, right. you, as you know, with a few exceptions. Um, two now, right? That's right. Yeah, two. That's right. <laughs> used to be one, but used to be one. Yeah, Northwestern, and and, uh, and there used to be University of Chicago, my right. alma mater. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's but um, but you know it's incredibly important. Uh, I've been in other conferences. Um, there's actually a facility, a vibrant facility in Chicago, right. where that alliance members meet not only presidents but also faculty members, students, and deans, um, and a lot of wonderful things have happened. Uh, because of that alliance. And I can tell you in my conversations with the other presidents and chancellors that not only is that integral to um, each of our identities, but it is one of the you know, most attractive features of the Big Ten. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really proud of the fact that the University of Michigan, when you go to the union, this, where the, the steps of which uh, John F. Kennedy articulated his vision of a Peace, Peace Corps, Corps, I think at 2 a.m. in the morning, something yeah. like that, that uh, 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 on the sides of that front door are a scholar and an athlete. Yeah. And some people often ask me, um, why is that important? 
well, we are a very large institution with 19 schools, um, an incredible amount of activity just in Ann Arbor. But if I compare the University of Chicago and University of Michigan, I've been at both, I'm proud of both. Um, there's something special about the athlete part. Um, the, the way it brings people together in the big house, over 105, 112,000 people coming together. And if you actually walk around, you'll see people from Michigan Medicine, from Kinesiology, from SMTD, LSNA, um, from engineering, all cheering for the same team. Um, and there's a saying, um, the team, the team, the team. And what's really special about the University of Michigan is whether it's athletics, any of the sports, whether it's research, whether it's teaching, there's an esprit de corps that I've never seen anywhere. And I think that's part of the secret sauce of what makes the University of Michigan special, is that people will come together, maybe at a football game, maybe at a coffee house, and they'll talk about ideas. You know, I've been to many alumni events for different institutions, and what's unique about the University of Michigan is they'll talk a lot before the event, and they'll stay the longest. <laughs> and this love of discourse, of sharing ideas, about dreaming about how, as a community, we can come together and do even better internally and externally is something that I'm particularly proud of. I won't ask what alumni enthusiasm does for your sleep schedule, but uh, <laughs> as we move to Q&A, uh, there's a few questions, but for time's sake, we're gonna just uh, do one right now, uh, which is that someone wrote, I imagine that admissions at such a competitive public university is quite complicated. A lot of your counterparts in the private university space can prioritize what they choose in admissions, financials, racial equity, things like that. But you also have to consider whether you are serving Michigan's best interests. How do you balance that, especially given the revenue disparity potential with out-of-state student, out students versus in-state? Well, we are discussing this actively. Several aspects of your question, it's multifaceted what yep. you ask. You're right. I mean, one in five is just the general selectivity. If you look at, for example, musical theater or, or um, you know, robotics, it could be up as low as 3% of the students are accepted. So um, there are students that I know who have applied to Ivy League schools in Michigan, gotten into Ivy League schools and not Michigan. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so, you know, that is something that we think about. We think about, are we the right size? Uh, we are large. We are not the largest public university in the state of Michigan. But if you, uh, Jeff, as you've written, if you compare <laughs> our sites to Toronto yeah. or Arizona State or UBC, yeah we're significantly smaller. And so I've asked just a fundamental question to our deans, do you want to grow? And the answer from most of them is, is yes, but only if we can provide a quality of educational student experience that they deserve. So we're not just growing, and we're not going to grow for the sake of growing, but Jeff, you're right, there is uh, something that we need to think about seriously about um, do we make the Michigan educational experience, um, the total experience available to more people. Because um, there's an important role public universities play. If you count all the graduates from the elite privates, they don't have the output that we do. So if you look at Michigan, Michigan State, Wayne State, Ohio State, Illinois, um, the Big Ten universities, our output is enormous. And so we have a responsibility uh, to provide an uncommon 
education to the common person, which is kind of our foundation to what we do as an institution. So we need to think about it. We are thinking about it. And that's part of your question. The other part of your question was um, the differential the revenue, in in-state sure, in versus outstate. outer state. I actually think, if you, if you think about how we were founded, we're not really a, a land grant. Mm -hmm. um, the proportion of students here that are out of state is higher than at many other public universities. I actually think it's pretty healthy where it is. I, I wouldn't want it to, to change much more. Uh, I do worry about, um, to part of your question, um, whether uh, we should grow so that more qualified Michigan students can come. But I actually think there is something that's positive to bringing the different kinds of uh, people, students, personalities, perspectives from around, across America together in, in, in one campus. And so if you, if you think about 36,000 undergrads, um, I think it's, it, it, it's enriching for someone to be in a classroom, a laboratory, in, in, uh, in, in a residence hall uh, with people not only from Michigan, but people from the coasts. And um, it's actually good for the country, actually, as well. So we have to look at the right number. But I think that the mix is, 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 is kind of magical. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, President Ono, for being with us today on Future You, and we'll be right back after this break. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very much. When students have access to the right technology, they are empowered to discover the world around them. Focused on learning, Dell Technologies and Google have come together to deliver innovative Chromebook devices so students, faculty, and staff can experience faster, more streamlined learning opportunities wherever learning happens. The Latitude 5460 Chromebook, with its long-lasting battery, sleek design, and tested durability, is a perfect choice for your anytime, anywhere learning environment. Welcome back to Future You. As we dive into this conversation with our panelists uh, at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, and as, as a reminder, this is a stop on the Future You campus tour, uh, and it is brought to you by Dell Technologies and Google Chrome OS. And on our panel today, we have Rob Ernst, the Associate uh, Vice President for Student Life for Health and Wellness. Uh, he is also a physician, as we talked about uh, backstage and is the university's chief health officer. We also have uh, Judith uh, Pennywell here, the director of the International Center. Thank you for being here. And uh, LaShawn Jackson, a senior in the School for Environment and Sustainability. Welcome to you all. Yes, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for being thank here. You. So I want to start, uh, I we said we would dig into a bunch of the issues that came up in the first part of the conversation with uh, President Ono. And I, I want to start with a question that has probably impacted all of you, which is the growing mental health challenges impacting young adults. Um, and I want to see how this is playing out at the University of Michigan and, and what you're doing to address it. So Rob, let's, let's start with you, given your role at focusing on, on health and, and critically wellness, which is obviously becoming a big issue on college campuses nationwide. Well, student mental health has been a, a big issue for a long time, and you're right. I think there's been a lot of concern that it's getting worse. I think some of the contributing factors for why there's been concern, even before the pandemic, 
was a sort of a growing awareness that the local community couldn't support the needs of students, particularly a big school like ours, that students come from all over the place and payment for mental health care can be really challenging. I think there's also been a, a trend, which I thought was unsolvable 20 years ago, which was stigma around help seeking. That's very different now and has contributed to an increased demand for some of these, what I'll call downstream services. Um, and that's a positive when you've got a, uh, a willingness to seek help or to help others you know, around you. The third has been uh, a, uh, an issue that students have long wanted to get in early and you know, get prompt service. Uh, so the issue for access has been a problem. So the model has often been short-term brief intervention, but increasingly now, uh, the students have been wanting longer-term treatment, and many students have more experience with mental health care before they come to campus. So we're much more savvy consumers of mental health services. So we're expecting uh, more, you know, uh, at least come to campus with an awareness of the differences between these kinds of uh, modalities. So we have been, like many places, adding mental health providers, and that hasn't seemed to move the needle. So um, during the, the peak of the pandemic, our institution, understanding that this problem may even become worse given the distress associated with the pandemic, charged a, uh, a team from across the campus to think about innovative ways to address uh, mental health care. And some of the suggestions that came out of that were best practices around some of these downstream resources and partnering with uh, telecounseling services, but we've also, during that same time, ado adopted the Okanagan Charter, and that was really the charge to um, address the ecosystem and to really try and promote the entire place as a health-promoting university as an upstream you know, approach in an effort to try and reduce the drivers of distress at a policy and a systems level. So, LeJean, how about uh, the student body and your, and your peers? We were talking uh, earlier about how you started uh, uh, your first year here at Michigan mm -hmm. online, mm -hmm. uh, and actually your entire first year online. So talk a little bit about, not only has that impacted you, but how does that has that impacted your peers? What are you seeing among uh, your fellow classmates? Yeah, um, that was challenging for sure. I think there was, you know, when you're growing up, you expect to graduate college, you expect to have your senior prom, and then none of those things happen, and you're like, okay, maybe we'll have freshman year of college. That didn't happen either. So, it was very, yeah, challenging. I think we talked more about it behind stage, just talking about how, like, um, it was hard to feel like you had an effect on the world. Like, I was just staring at pixels all the time for the entire year. I'm just like, what am I doing? I just feel like a robot. Um, but, you know, getting here and, like, meeting um, people in my same age group, um, being a senior, we're like, yeah, it's the year for juniors. Like, we're going to make up for all the time lost. And I think and that way, it's been a positive outcome um, in the sense that we kind of recognize the time loss and want to do our best to make up for it. And I think that has kind of um, made my experience here a little more sweeter, just to know that you know we came out of it and you know it wasn't all good, but it's OK now. And yeah. And, and do you feel like that uh, the pandemic kind of hastened issues that were already there? Or do you, how did, how do you think it would have been different if you had started that, that first year here? Mm. Um, I think, I don't know how different it would have been. I think we would just, I don't know, I think I'd be less present because I wouldn't have, you know, like I would expect these things like, oh, okay, this is normal. Like, hmm. okay, this is how it's supposed to be. But right. the fact that it wasn't how it's supposed to be kind of 
made you kind of step back and realize like, oh, this is actually really special to be in a place and learn with others and grow with others. Um, and I think I've grown a lot like um, leadership wise and confidence wise. So I think in that sense, not having that first year of just being like a drone and losing all my social skills and then coming back and relearning that, all of them um, and it was like really special for me. And I think, yeah, that's kind of the difference. And, and Judith, how, we, we've talked a lot on Future You about the mental health changes challenges facing colleges and universities and students at colleges and universities. I, I think we tend to do it from a, a domestic lens of, of domestic students. How about international students? Because often I don't think we're thinking of them in, 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 in perhaps a different way if we have to. Like what, what, are, what should universities be doing for international students specifically? Right, well, I'll start by saying our, our statistics. We have about a 17% international um, student population within our student body, and so that's a fairly large percentage, and of that, about 65% are graduate professional doctoral students, um, some of whom bring families. So we, when we think about international students um, in our office, we're really thinking about you know someone as young as 17 all the way up to wow. 30s, 40s, that kind of thing, and, and, and their children and that kind of thing. So some of the things that we've done here, you know, from the mundane, we have an international health insurance requirement, um, and that, provides students, you know, and provides us with an opportunity to make sure that students are taken care of in the case of illness, injury, or worse, um, and that they have access to all the different services that are offered here within the university community, Michigan Med, and the, the overall community, or when they're traveling. So it's mundane, but it's important. Um, our counseling and psychological services, CAPS, um, they do amazing work. They have several groups targeted at international students, some of which they do in other languages, and they have several counselors who, who speak other languages. And I'm sure Rob is gonna speak more about some of the collective impact work that we're doing, but they've made sure to include people from my office, uh, including myself, to make sure that international student concerns and voices are being heard in the process. It's the perfect transition because <laughs> I wanted to move to collective impact and, and sort of the role that that plays won't surprise listeners to a you know very decentralized uh, campus in the University of Michigan, uh, and I want to turn to you, Lashawn, first, just because uh, you've become very focused in your journey at the University of Michigan on this question of sustainability. You didn't start there, uh, but you've you've come to there. So I'd, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the roles that you've held, what you're studying, um, and and how collective impact has informed how Michigan has tackled this question of sustainability. And I, I just want to give you this, you had this great quote when we talked beforehand where you said that uh, a flagship university, things could be a little lonely, uh, but we're doing it with other actors, figures, communities that need to be at the center of these conversations and movements. Yeah, um, I think, that's, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, I think, um, yeah, to begin, um, I think the most fulfilling experience I've had so far on campus was um, last year I, I served as co-president of our Student Sustainability Coalition. Um, and that's kind of where I was able to really work with others who very obviously cared about the issue of sustainability and making our campus and community um, better than it is and better in the future. Um, and so through that, I think I learned a lot about what it means to have collective impact. Like, I think it's obviously like when you get together with people who care about the same thing, okay, you're gonna work towards the same thing, but seeing the impact as well um, is just invaluable, honestly. Um, and I think um, yeah, when we talk about strategic visioning, like um, Santa mentioned earlier, I think it's um, important to elevate students and their voices in, this, in these spaces because I think my generation is the one that's kind of 
tasked with solving the world's issues, unfortunately. Um, and while that is daunting, it does provide a lot, a lot of opportunity for us to um, kind of hone in and, and get together and be like, hey, like I care about you. We care about each other. Let's get through this together and figure out ways to do it together. And with sustainability, I think um, on a campus level, I think it's important to, um, like Sansa said as well, um, collaborate with others and, and realize that you know in these coming years, the world will be changing. And I think who we have by our side is just going to be paramount to how we get on the other side of that. Judith, I'd love you to weigh in here just because obviously collective impact doesn't just go through the work that you know students are doing here, but you're sending students all over the camp, all over the world, right? Uh, there's a, quite a global aspect of the University of Michigan. How are you thinking about these issues? Right. Well, we think about education abroad, not just study abroad. We think about the opportunities that we can provide students to not only study, but to do research, to do volunteer service, to do internships overseas, so that they're getting these experiences not only in their field of study um, uh, or in their area of interest, like, say, sustainability, um, but they're bringing back ideas and perspectives that continue to grow um, and enhance their, their ultimate educational experience here at Michigan. So sending them out into the world, um, you know, reaps rewards when they come back, right? Um, we have probably, pre-pandemic, you know, we're still kind of rebounding on the study abroad or the education abroad side, um, but we've had about 36, 37% of our undergraduate body do education abroad experiences. And I think that's a really, you know, it's a, it's a tribute to kind of the academic departments here and the colleges and schools and how they're set up. It might be decentralized, but they're definitely thinking about how do we best serve our students and educational abroad experiences in these particular majors mm. um, in our field, you know? So I think there's definitely, um, and it's a, it's a continuing opportunity that we need to pursue because I think it's very important um, for students to you know, develop the types of knowledge, skills, um, attitudes that will serve them well, regardless if they go on to grad school or into careers. Yeah, so Rob, let's let you lay out those principles then of collective <laughs> impact that uh, undergird not just the sustainability work, but also the uh, health and wellness work that we were talking about and a lot of actions, it seems to me, at least from talking to you beforehand, that undergird when, say, the University of Michigan says, we have to come together as a community to tackle something. And, and right, I think it's because we're so famously decentralized and uh, um, big issues that have a common agenda across a big decentralized place are a perfect kind of scenario for collective impact, which is a, it's a framework to bring people together just to bring about society or you know societal change, uh, and, and the important part from the my perspective with collective impact is it has to be anchored to a common agenda. And for health and wellness, I mentioned a moment ago during the peak of the pandemic, the vice president of student life and the provost charged this student <coughs> mental health task force. And as we were getting ready to uh, you know lean into best practices for downstream, you know. Um, sort of interventions for student mental health that might have been exacerbated by the pandemic and then rolled them out to the campus, we consistently heard from faculty and staff, what about us? We're struggling too. Mm. And, you know, even if you only care about student mental health, you know, building capacity for faculty and staff is the ingredients for an ecosystem that improves the well-being of the whole community. So the, the common agenda is how collective impact starts. And for health and wellness, I mentioned ago, we, we built 
uh, our collective impact structure around an aspirational goal of being a health promoting university. We joined the US um, Health Promoting Campuses Network. We built a backbone, which is really important. It's not just you know, a you know, commitment to try and be better. It's a permanent infrastructure that's well represented across campus with different stakeholders that they could bring to the table around this common agenda. You know, the goal is to try and identify uh, mutually reinforcing activities that lead to policy and system change so that you can actually work upstream on the drivers of distress. The whole ecosystem improves that way. One of the early wins we had was, for instance, changing the start date for the winter semester. Pushed it back a week. There was a policy. We start winter semester, first Wednesday after the first Monday. Just policy. <laughs> Probably good reasoning for setting that up so that you can plan your calendars or something. But when the first Monday is January 1st, that means classes start January 3rd, and people just we're not ready. Across the system said that that's not, we're just not ready. Mm -hmm. So it, it gave us a framework, it gave us a backbone structure, it gave us a governing body and a platform to talk about this common agenda. Some of the tricky parts that are still work in progress are some shared measures. You know, it's tricky when you're trying to measure things like how do you build resiliency in students? You know, how do you measure someone's ability to define their purpose or, you know, how you know, how do you prioritize your health along the same lines as your academics? These are the things we're trying to figure out through this structure. At the same time, we also learned as we were coming together to, you know, work on uh, a collective approach to COVID, continuous communication is critically important along those lines. So having a common agenda, building a backbone structure, identifying mutually reinforcing activities, identifying some common measures, and then continuous communication are the underlying principles for collective impact. We call ours the well-being collective. That's, it's a thing, it's not just an idea. Okay, I wanna to get to our last set of questions, and again, we're gonna um, have questions from the audience as well um, when we have time. But um, I wanna to return to the topic we explored earlier with uh, President Ono around being this global university, but also having um, uh, anchor being anchored here in in Michigan and Ann Arbor and, and Detroit um, specifically. And so, Jude, let me start with you on this, and then we'll uh, move to Sean and, and Rob. Can you talk about the university's international goals and how they intersect with being kind of a, a good member and partner in the community? Because, again, some people might say, well, we're a state university in the state of Michigan. Why do we need international students? Right, well, as you mentioned before, we're in the backyard of Detroit and a stone's throw from Detroit is another country, it's Canada, right? <laughs> and so we are international by nature, you know? Um, and I don't think it's incongruent, right? I don't think, I, I think you can be a public serving institution and a global institution at the same time. The types of things that we're teaching, the, the ideas and concepts our students are learning, the research we're doing, it's all, global. We've learned something from the pandemic. We've learned something from topics like climate change um, and sustainability. We can't just do it in a vacuum. We have to be thinking about more than our community. So I think our goals around engaged learning, making stu sure students have opportunities to um, grow inside and outside of the classroom and, these, and, and figure out how to solve big problems because um, as LaShawn mentioned, her generation's gonna solve the problems for us. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that's all part of our, our work. And if we, we have a diverse student body, 
coming from around the country, as that was noted earlier, as well as around, around the world, 125 countries. Um, we want to make sure that, that we are thinking about things not only locally, but globally. So, LaShawn, what does that mean for you? We talked about around the country. You're from Georgia. But how is the worldwide view of, of higher education here, and how has that changed or enriched your experience here as an, uh, as an undergraduate? Yeah, there's no denying that um, the University of Michigan is very well resourced. I think I've had a lot of opportunities like this um, that I've taken advantage of, and um, I will always be grateful for those. Um, I think what's more important to me, though, is the, what we do with where we are, not necessarily how we're ranked. Um, I think it's important, like, it, like you were saying, I think it does, it is international by nature, but starting small is also very key. Um, I've learned a lot about community building and community resi resiliency in the past couple years, and I think, you know, learning to take care of yourself and others first, I think can radiate out in unimaginable ways, honestly, um, to the local community, state community, uh, national, international. So I think really just does start small, and I think that's cliche, but I, I've, I've learned that it's true, and um, I've work been working to practice that in my life, and it's been really fulfilling. And Rob, how about you in terms of, uh, what are the things you're thinking about that maybe your colleagues at other universities don't necessarily think about because you have this huge footprint Around the, around the world? Well, you, there's some responsibility from a practical standpoint, as Judith mentioned, you know, you have students and other affiliates you know, traveling around the world. Just like we have to do in our own backyard, we have to understand the health and safety of our, our, our folks when they're you know, um, not here. Um, and that's part of the work. I think at a, the way I would think about this is, I'm, I was reminded when I was listening to the earlier segment with President Ono when he talked about the importance of a student experience. It's a transformational time, you know? It's a long time ago for me, but I'm always <laughs> energized when I think about that opportunity for students to transform themselves. And that happens in the ecosystem that's enriched by diversity and diverse backgrounds and experiences. And, um, you know, the Okanagan Charter, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, this international charter, it's grounded in principles of equity and diversity and really speaks to the interconnectedness of people, communities, and the entire planet. You know, if there's any, you know, if there's pain in one of those, then it gets transmitted to others, you know. So, uh, but if there's, you know, goodness and, you know, you enrichment by the experiences uh, of others as well. So I think diversity is a, a key ingredient to an ecosystem for transformative experiences. So we have some great questions coming in on the iPad. I think, do we have time for two or do we have to? Uh, we can do cut? two. What? Okay, do we'll, two. we'll try. All right. Um, Rob, I think this is probably going to be for you, but if you all have a perspective, jump on in. Um, the first one is students are seeking more mental health support. Yet many faculty are untrained with assisting and filling the support that's needed. So how can we re-envision graduate training to prepare the future professors to be able to handle this new part of the job? Right, right, yeah. And uh, I actually think one of the things I'm super excited about that's coming out of the um, Wellbeing Collective and uh, was identified by one of the work groups charged by our backbone structure was how do we build faculty capacity, understanding that they are on the front lines and are oftentimes seeing students in distress. And uh, our, we're gonna work with uh, our um, Center for 
transformative learning to try and come up with a, uh, a, a sort of systemic a, a model for uh, building faculty capacity on how to have the tools not just to identify students in distress, but to actually, you know, intervene and then connect into the system, you know. And I think that's the other key part is to build a system that is a continuum and it's not just a one size fits all. It's not just a, you know, mental health issue. It's a counseling deficiency. You know, it, you know we have other opportunities to address, you know, some of the specific issues that may be in place. So, um, for instance, we have a wellness coaching um, a program that's really gaining popularity around motivational interviewing that can explore um, issues around behavioral issues or addictions and things like that. Um, and recognize that uh, oftentimes students feel more comfortable seeking help out of, out of a medical provider. So having a, a model that's connected across a continuum built to sort of make sure we address some of the more significant things through partnerships, but not a one-size-fits-all. And you're absolutely right, you know, having some tools to build capacity for our faculty, faculty. who want to be partners in this and uh, the well, and really are on the front, front line in many very cases. Much, yeah. Very much, yeah. very much. Yeah, so the, the, the next question is also about mental health supports. Uh, and it refers to, and I have to make sure I get my zeros right here, but staff make up 50,000 people on the Ann Arbor campus and yet don't receive many of the mental health supports given to faculty and students, particularly the added breaks for mental health. How would you address this inequity? I don't know who wants to. Something we've actually talked a lot about is that universities think a lot about student experience, think a lot about faculty experience. They don't always think about the staff experience. I'm happy to jump in here as well and say that increasingly, and in fact, all the time now, I, I grew up as a, a campus health provider, and I use those words specifically. Many people will say they run a student health center. I, I call it campus health, mm. and that encompasses the entire ecosystem, as mm. I say, you know, and it's, uh, I think, becoming increasingly apparent that a university, even like ours, that provides a very generous benefit package, you know, and says, you're a free agent. We're going to give you this generous benefit package. Now go figure out where you're going to get your needed care. Many employees are finding, like I said earlier with the students, that the surrounding community doesn't have the capacity to meet those needs, particularly those most in need. This is the really challenging part. Um, and... Um, our university has had employee assistance programs, which grew out of, you know, specific, often concerns with performance and things like that. But over the last 10 years are increasingly being turned to as a mental health provider. You know, we've got to come up with a, another approach on the downstream. It's complicated. But I do believe it's why I'm so bullish about working upstream on the drivers of distress. And if we can really work together and think about the, the uh, ecosystem and try and turn down the temperature through systems and policies, just like we should do, be doing for environmental you know, uh, justice, um, then I think we won't have to be so dependent upon the downstream resources. It's training and retraining of supervisors as well to kind of mm. watch out and be cognizant of the fact that staff are facing some of the similar issues that we're seeing in other parts of the community. Um, so our HR policies and our supervision, um, supervisors training, 
um, can use a boost in this area, I think, and that's something that we have to continue to think about in order to be successful in the future. Yeah, yeah. I also think it's a culture shift as well. I think um, encouraging people to just show up as they are and, and feel comfortable in the spaces that they're in. I mean, you know, we're, we go into work and we, you know, we have to do this job and you know, go home. Like, but I think you know, we spend a lot of time here, and I think encouraging um, people to just be themselves and show up as they are and how they need to be and communicate that. Um, I don't know how that works. I still am trying to figure that out, but I think that's a, a key element as well. But even for faculty, right? The faculty don't exactly. have to be perfect exactly. in front of the classroom. Yes. Right? Exactly. So um, that's all we have time for today for the three of you. This has been a great conversation. I, I don't know about you, Michael, but uh, but this whole day or this whole hour that we've been uh, uh, together here, uh, I'm just thinking of the uh, of the ideas that uh, President Ona talked about um, in terms of growing uh, and and balancing that with quality. Uh, you know, he made reference to Canada, obviously where he was here previously at the University of British Columbia, where the where the universities there, the top quality universities in Canada are much larger uh, than the top quality universities in the U.S. That was one big takeaway I had of that. Uh, Judith, what you said about um, education versus study abroad, right? That we need to think more broadly about um, the work that students are doing um, uh, abroad. And then third, Sean, just in terms of the work of sustainability, um, I was on a, I moderated a panel recently where the top threat to American higher ed is, we often think of it as enrollment, we often think of it as finances and things like that, but everybody on the panel uh, um, uh, identified uh, sustainability and environmental sustainability as a, the, one of the biggest threats to American um, higher education. And, and I'm just fascinated by your uh, trajectory here because I often think that we are, uh, American higher education is very good at training people and educating people for other industries, but not necessarily thinking about themselves, right? Not, not necessarily think about the institution itself, right? And that, that you're becoming so involved in the institution here, I think really speaks volumes for what I think could be a model for other colleges and universities to really get their students involved at solving the problems locally. Um, not just nationally and, and internationally. Michael, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts. Yeah, just a, a couple building off that. I mean, I'm, I'm always struck when I'm at a university at how running a university is like running a city or a state in, in its own right, right? And that speaks, I think, to giving students and, and others in the community more opportunities to be part of those problem solving uh, on the campus itself. Um, and then I, I was just struck, Rob, I'm, I'm always struck by just how, you know, the stigma around mental health really has gone away and the ripple effects that that creates, both not just for the downstream conversation, but for the upstream and more of the preventative uh, approach to not just mental health, but wellness more generally uh, is so critical, I think, on our, our campuses. And um, LaShawn, you talked a lot about how missing that year really led the students and you to really want to seize the opportunity of being in this place. Um, I think a lot about this because we often talk about hey, what if it was a three-year degree instead of a four-year and stuff like mm -hmm. that? But I think more than that, showing up then on campus was the other part of what you said, as you are, and being able to present yourself and, and get into these complicated conversations and have civil discourse like Santa talked about in the first half that is often missing from universities, unfortunately, and wrestling with the trade-offs between all these questions that we've been debating is a real big part of the work of the university. So really appreciate you all engaging. In, yeah, in and please us. join us in thanking all three of these panelists today. Thank you. Thank you. 
So we're, uh, we're going to leave it there. Uh, in addition to our panelists, thank you to our sponsors again, Dell Technologies and Google Chrome OS. Uh, thank you to President Ono, of course. And thanks uh, again to uh, the folks here at the University of Michigan and all of you for joining us today. Thank you very much for being here. And thank you and have a good day. Thank you.